Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Um, I want to introduce our very special mascot and guest. Henry is dressed for the occasion. Henri. I just, and I'm hoping that he will stay with me. You see his special tie? What's the occasion? Just another halakha. He's dressed up for another halakha. Oh, you're not wearing your ears. They can see. Can you see? Okay, hold on. This is this is our Yeah, there we go. Hi. <laughs> Say hi to the camera. <laughs> Make sure oh he's so good. Like <laughs> yes, I will order the chicken for, for Henry tonight. Alhamdulillah. Well, it's a it's a perfect occasion. I was gonna announce I'm actually um I'm going to be fulfilling um, one of the lessons from the Halakha, which is honoring your parents. So I'm actually heading out back to California um, tonight or tomorrow morning very early. Um, and so um, I will be missing everyone here um, for the next week or so. Um, but we have a new MC, Master of Ceremony, Henri, and Henri's mom. So she will be sitting in for me while I'm gone. Um, need to have a little bit of um, female power to just, you know, sit, sit beside the sheikh to balance things out. So. Inshallah, um, pray for me. I hate traveling, so it's no fun. But um, this is kind of that time of, of year where everybody's kind of taking their turn to go go home and, and visit family. And congratulations to Joe, who got married um, officially today. We miss him. Um, but alhamdulillah, um, inshallah, may Allah bring us all back in one piece, safe and sound, so we can all be together again, inshallah. Um, so anyway, I you know, we um, I don't really have... That much to say, except um, I think I, I just want to express my gratitude to people um, because a lot of you know, in my absence, a lot of people are stepping up and, and helping to just take care of a lot of the things, taking care of Sheikh and all of that. Um, and you know, it's exciting because we we have so much stuff going on with Usuli, and um, it was interesting. Like we, we actually, I, I, I want to again shout out to, to Ramin and you know and Marwa, and because our, I think our social media has been incredible. Like a lot of the pictures and quotes and all of that and. You know, we're growing our audience on Instagram, which is nice. Um, you know, it's a bit of a challenge because the things that we do here are very intense and they require, you know, people have patience and that they read and they, you know, like these are long halakas. It's a lot to ask people. Um, so it's a really good challenge to try and put things out on social media on that platform that can actually captivate people and catch their attention and, and make them, you know, click and think about, you know, and, and try to look into well, who are these people. Um, and, you know, I continue to get a lot of really beautiful messages from people who are so grateful that they just found us. They just found the sheikh. They're so grateful. You know, they're starting to consume the, you know, uh, halakas and the, the khutbahs and all of that. And so, you know, I'm, I'm you know, a, a lot of that is really just because social media is the, the way to reach people in our time. And, um, you know, and for a, a, you know, organization like us and for what we do, it's, it's a really you know, it's a, it's a good challenge marketing-wise. So thank you, you guys are doing an amazing job. Um, and one of the pictures that we recently shared, so we had our, our very first meeting um, to discuss the transcription, the publication um, of these Project Illumin Holocaust, which is just so exciting because we really are hoping that this is gonna be, you know, the legacy and the core of things moving forward. Um, and, you know, if like, as we have been engaged in these halakhas and you know every single halakha we learn so much about what's going on in our life how to think about it um, you know and and i think honestly if you were here with us you would see that 
the halakas that come to us are very intentional. It's like I feel oftentimes God is sending us messages that directly relate to the things that we're doing, um, the things that we're working on. And so I, I just want to you know, point out what was fascinating is we had this very interesting and exciting meeting about the tafsir, and literally the next halakha was dariyat, which emphasized the point about roles and how people, everyone has a very special role to play. Um, and that, you know, for a project like this, um, there is nothing that is, you know, more true to the success. So, you know, even with, whether it's like, you know, the social media getting out or people having strengths with, you know, publishing, transcriptions, editing, marketing, you know, all the different aspects that come into publishing. It's, it's, it's going to be um, a really, you know, intense project and um, it's going to require a lot of hands on deck. Um, but inshallah, I really pray that you know, we will succeed in this mission and in our cause and leaving this legacy behind, inshallah. And um, so the last thing that I think is really important is to, you know, the thing that came out in that meeting is the really important role of the sheikh, even in terms of the timing of the publication. You know, we tried to set a timeline in terms of like when we would finish the transcription and then, you know, having to move from trans like raw transcription to editing to the really deep work of like citations and, you know, like getting a text to its final finished form before you can publish it. Um, and a lot of that involves obviously, you know, going back to the Arabic sources and trying to, you know, find things that are going to be important to include in this. And, you know, Sheikh's involvement will be critical if he's able to have that time. So in our estimation, if Sheikh is involved, which means if we can raise money to buy his time, that means a year to a year and a half difference in when that publication come out, can come out. So it just underscores again, you know, the, the need for, for us to, you know, get support um, because, you know, we can, if we do it on our own without, you know, Sheikh's um, direct involvement to really push things along, it's just going to take a lot longer. You know, there's just no two ways about that. Um, so just to, you know, please do, um, do what you can to spread the word about what we're doing, um, how important it is. I know that it's getting out there. People are getting very excited. Um, you know, I, the messages that I see are like, you know, the way that Dr. Abul Fadl is presenting the Quran has completely changed my relationship with the Quran. You know, I mean, I get so many messages like that, or I see so many messages like that on social media. So it's really encouraging and heartening. And I know there are more people out there that, um, you know, will, will feel the same way if they can find us and if they can figure out what we're doing. Um, and, and that, again, is, is quite the challenge. So, um, but please spread the word so, inshallah, you know, we can have, um, you know, some hope of raising funds to really buy the Sheikh's time and we can really get this project out there. Um, and if we can move forward on, on the, the tafsir, then inshallah we'll have a chance to go to the next project, which is the Sira, which is very exciting as well. Right, Henry? <laughs> okay, so anyway, um, thank you. I'm so excited again for another session today. And Henry is dressed and ready to go. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim walhamdulillah rabbil alameen. Salatu wa salam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa atawahu bi ihsanin ila yawm al-deen. Allahumma shuhli sadri wa yasrli amri wa ahlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli. The surah for today, insha'Allah, is for salat. And um, subhanAllah that we have this surah today for uh, the reasons that I will explain. 
but um, you know, putting Fusilot in many ways is is putting the dots where they belong. The it, it's the the de defining of the milestones. Um, the clear markers of a thing. And before we jump in, I just uh, want to clarify because it, it's uh, after now I understand the progress made with the uh, um, publication project and and it's very exciting because I do think it will be a very important contribution um, and essential and critical one. But I want to underscore what Grace said because the difference between um, the ability for me to be involved full time in getting this project out and not being able to do so is enormous. If you are involved full time then you you cut down the amount of work simply because of my experience and knowledge uh, what it would take a student you know perhaps 10 hours to do um, it could take me 20 minutes and what might involve uh, a year of hard work uh, is something that I can accomplish in, in two weeks or a month. So the difference is enormous, but also the intellectual integrity of the project. Uh, if I am involved in every aspect, then I am making sure that the ideas are captured accurately and precisely uh, and I want to just be very frank about uh, about what is involved because if I could retire today, I would. It's it's purely finances. It's purely an issue of whether you have enough income to pay your bills or not. And. We are still at a stage where the vast majority of money for the Osoli Institute comes from, uh, from us individually as a family. In other words, the, the most of the money that supports Osoli at this stage is still from my paycheck uh, as a law professor, which if you know academics, it, it's just maintaining a library, maintaining usuli, maintaining your own life um, with, uh, with a child who's about to enter college and so on and so forth. But added to this is that I have to be honest with you, and this is something that my family knows, I don't feel that, Allah it's all in Allah's hands, but for many different reasons I don't feel that my time on this earth is very long. And so the amount of time that I have and how it's apportioned um, 
is rather a critical issue. At this stage, with what my heart tells me about how long I'm going to be on this earth, uh, every minute I spend teaching the technicalities of law, something that some other person can do. Some other person can teach asylum law or can teach international law or can teach um, human trafficking. These are technicalities of law, technical law. Um, there are many fully qualified people who can do this. But how many people can do the Quran project? So every time, every minute that I spend teaching the technicalities of law, I honestly, all the time, I say astaghfirullah. All the time, I am asking for Allah's for forgiveness. Because I wish that that time could be spent where uh, I am truly, uniquely qualified. Um, and that's the Quran project. And I think that's a challenge not just for me individually, but a challenge, or for my family, but a challenge to the entire ummah. Every ummah is challenged by how it takes care of its ulama or what it does with its ulama. Whether it kills them, whether it imprisons them, whether it persecutes them, whether it supports them, whether it marginalizes them, whether it ignores them. You measure the fate of an ummah with what they do vis-a-vis -vis the bearers of intellect and the bearers of morals. Um, and also how an ummah recognizes alim. Because if an ummah um, embraces chi uh, uh, um, embraces um, frauds, that's also on the on the ummah. Anyway, um, it's very clear that if I leave this world before the Quran project is published, I think the project will be delayed. And I can foresee all types of discussions and arguments that will arise after me. Um, but if I am able to make sure that this project is completed and published while I'm still alive, I think it will make a big difference. I'm being very frank with anyone who's listening to this. Uh, so I can tell Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when I meet Allah that, I was very frank and I didn't hold anything back. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Allah will will and I'll, I'll live longer than I ever want to. But, um, uh, you know, this is all in Allah's hands. But I'm telling you what my heart tells me. What every time I pray on this is the answer that I get. Um, And Allah knows best. Allah alam. Always. Okay. Surat Fussilat. Wama adraka ma Surat Fussilat. So much to say, and so I'll try to be extremely efficient. because of the weight of Surat Fussilat and what it achieves 
and how it accomplishes it. Um, and the enormity of the surah itself. So first, we notice right away that surah Fussilat is among the hawamim. It starts with ha-mim. And we've talked about that, and we said that the hawamim are the surah that cumulatively are the heart of the Qur'an, the kernel of the Qur'an. But what's very interesting about Surah Fussilat is that although it is among the Hawamim, it is revealed after the Isra. And it is also revealed after Surah Zumur, which we've talked about, and Surah Ghafir, which we've talked about. Critically, it is revealed before Surah Shura, which inshallah, its time will come. And in many ways, it lays the groundwork for Surah Shura. After Shura, we know that it is Fusilat, Shura, and then it's Zuhruf. We talked about the Zuhruf. But Fusilat clearly laid the groundwork for Shura. And Fusilat quite intentionally follows Zumar and Ghafir and the fact that it is revealed after Al-Isra, so in the later Meccan period, in the late Meccan period, a period of intense persecution and a desperate search for solutions. The Prophet's uncle, Abu Talib, had died. Khadija radiallahu anha had died. And as we know, there are a series of sur after the Isra, one after the other that all deliver a heavy moral normative legacy. And the question is, how does Fusilat fit into this narrative, and why? So, Ha'mim, and we've talked about these two letters in particular, and notice, just to jump ahead a little bit, Surah Shura is not going to start with Ha'mim. In fact, the beginning of Surah Shura is very particular 
And inshallah, when Allah wills that we talk about Surah Ashura, we'll address that. But it, it starts with a series of letters that are very different than Hamim. But Hamim, so it is among the Hawamim of the Quran, Tanzilun min rahman rahim A message from Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, from the most merciful, the most compassionate. The definition of compassion and mercy itself, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim is the is the embodiment of each of these attributes the compassionate and the merciful. And Tanzil, a message, a revelation from. Then immediately it tells you, Kitabun Fusilat Ayatuhu Quranan Arabian Likomin Yalamun. This is a book whose ayat and whose ayat could be whose signs, whose narrative, whose exposition has been fusilat. Fusilat is to expound, but to expound with clarity and precision. So when we say fusilat thawb, you you mean they you stitched clothes. But because you are stitching is a, is a very particular and precise uh, process. If you do it wrong, then you, you, you have a problem. And so for sunat, when you say fassalakawl, it means the, whatever this person said made it very clear and very precise. So when the Quran refers to itself and says, Kitabun Fusilat Ayati, Fusilat Ayatu, Quranan Arabian Likomin Yalamun. It's as if the Quran is telling you, pay attention, because here is a precise and clear message. And here is a message that Allah utilizes. Linguistics and linguistics is a is an artifact that human beings use. Human beings employ language as a method of signing. You're sending out signs. Language is an aid. That it is an attempt to express intentionality using signs and symbols and 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 a a, a um uh, like a you're utilizing things that help you to express intentionality in the same way that I'm struggling with language right now so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying I am using your language and in this case, the Arabic language, and I'm utilizing it 
clearly and intentionally and precisely. So pay attention for the message that is being delivered. And as you will see, it is remarkable that Surat Fussilat comes at a time of intense persecution and at a time of significant um, psychological and emotional struggle with 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 um, the feet of Muslims. Muslims at this point have a very serious question of well, the, are the Meccans going to annihilate us? Are the Meccans going to succeed in destroying us? Um, and all we have to go on is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that our belief that Allah will find a way out for us of the predicament that we are in. بَشِيرًا وَنَذِيرًا فَأَعْرَضَ أَكْثَرُهُمْ فَهُمْ لَا يَسْمَعُونَ وَقَالُوا قُلُوبُنَا فِي أَكِنَّةٍ مِمَّا تَدْعُونَنَا مِمَّا تَدْعُونَا إِلَيْهِ وَفِي آذَانِنَا وَقْرٌ مِنْ بَيْنِنَا وَبَيْنِكَ حِجَابٌ فَاعْمَلْ إِنَّنَا عَامِلُونَ so Bashiran wa Naziran. The Prophet was sent as a warner and as a, as a conveyor of good tidings, meaning good news. But yet, most of them have turned away as if they cannot hear what the Prophet has to say. And they said, our, our hearts are closed off to what you are inviting us to. Our hearts are closed off and our ears are plugged. We don't hear you, we don't feel you. And not only that, but there is as if a wall have come down between us and you. It is a statement of an absolute divorce, like divorce papers and separation. It is acknowledging the reality that the Prophet is confronting a population that is unreachable. And that this population, in fact, is the majority. And that this population is telling the Prophet, effectively, our hearts are closed, our ears are closed, our minds are closed, there is a wall between you and us, and you have your past and we have our past, and the two shall not meet. So... The Qur'an is 
affirming to the Prophet that with a lot of these people, there's no path forward. There is no way he's going to be able to reach them. But yet, having acknowledged this, you would expect that the next thing is to say something like, well, you know, stay in your home, don't talk to them anymore, it is a entirely hopeless situation. But what follows is a rhetorical surprise. Because what follows is, قُلْ إِنَّمَا أَنَا بَشَرٌ مِثْلَكُمْ يُوحَى إِلَيَّ إِنْ أَنَّمَا إِلَاهُكُمْ إِلَاهٌ وَاحِدٌ فَاسْتَقِيمُوا إِلَيْهِ وَاسْتَغْفِرُوهُ وَوَيْلٌ لِلْمُشْرِكِينَ But although it is clear now that they have said there is an entire barrier between us and you, no access, your response is to keep trying. And to say, Innama ana basharun mithlukum. I am a human being just like you. And as was pointed out in a number of tafasir, this is relates to. To, to narratives from the companions and the tabi'een that and uh, um, for uh, for instance in the tafsir al-Najami by um, um, by Ahmed ibn Umar uh, it says فَذَلِكَ يُشِيرُ إِلَىٰ أَنَّ الْبَشَرُ كُلَّهُمْ سَوَاءٌ that just by affirming that, even at that point, Allah is underscoring that all human beings are equal in humanity. All human beings are equal in humanity. But their God is one. And yet again, call upon them, فَاسْتَقِيمُوا إِلَيْهِ وَاسْتَغْفِرُوا So, come to God and ask God's forgiveness. Now, knowing fully well that the answer to that will be no. That there is, you will make this call and you will be turned down. I'll, I'll tell you a, um, a story about Surah Fusilat in a little bit, but let's, let's proceed. Um, uh,
Well, I, I'm gonna no. I'll tell you the story now. I'm, I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but I think it it helps in situating this world. So, surat for surat, as we said, comes late and at a time in which the majority of Meccans have intensified their persecution and in fact every time the Prophet ﷺ tries to go out near the Kaaba and preach they have developed a system by which they drown out his speech with whistling and clapping and sometimes physical assault. So he, he's unable to be heard. So whatever he's going to say is not going to be heard. But yet, day after day after day after day, he still goes. And he still tries. And he's drowned out every single time with whistling and clapping and screaming and jeering and laughing. And it results because several Muslims do the same. It results in repeated physical attacks. And depending on, on your status, <clears throat> you know, if you're a slave, then you are tortured. If your family uh, um, puts you, uh, um, uh, if your family confines you, then you're jailed. Um, some people are even killed. And then others, like Abu Bakr or like Omar, although they're not jailed and they are not confined, but they are repeatedly involved in this process where they keep trying to get the message, convey the message, at least publicly, and repeatedly they're prevented from reaching anyone. At this point, the folks in Mecca said, let's make one final attempt at now that the, the, this man, Muhammad, has lost his uncle, has lost his wife, he's, he's, we, we've been, we boycotted Muslims for now a year. Many of them have, uh, left to Abyssinia, the, the, the persecution against them has intensified, so they're basically in a, in a very powerless position. So let's get together and let's make Muhammad one final offer to try to get him to quit. So they choose Utbah bin Rabi'ah and it makes sense that they choose Utbah bin Rabi'ah because Utbah bin Rabi'ah is a man known for his uh, eloquence and he's a very sophisticated um, poet. Uh, he speaks very eloquently. He's known as among the nobility of Mecca. So they tell Utbah, Go talk to Muhammad and make him an offer. 
So Uqba bin Rabi'ah goes to Muhammad and he says, أَأَنْتَ خَيْرٌ أَمْ عَبْدُ اللَّهِ أَأَنْتَ خَيْرٌ أَنْ عَبْدُ عَبْدُ الْمُطَّلِبِ فَسَكَتَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ فقال فإن كنت تزعم أن هؤلاء خير منك فقد عبدوا الآلهة التي عبدت وإن كنت تزعم أنك خير منهم فتكلم حتى نسمع قولك أما والله ما رأينا سخلة قد أشأم على قومك منك فرقت جماعتنا وشتت أمرنا وعبت ديننا وفضحتنا في العرب حتى لقد طار فيهم أن في قريش ساحرا وأن في قريش كاهنا والله ما تنتظر إلا مثل صيحة الحبلة أن يقوم بعضنا إلى بعض بالسيوف يا رجل إن كان إنما بك الحاجة جمعنا لك حتى تكون أغنى قريش رجلا وإن كان إنما بك الباء فاختر أي نساء قريش شئت لنزوجك عشرة So عقبة بن ربيعة goes and he starts out by telling the Prophet listen, are you claiming that you are better than such and such? Are you better than such and such? Are you saying that you are more rational, more sane, more ethical than such and such? Because if you are saying so, well, these people if you're not saying so, well, these people worshipped what we've worshipped. These people have followed the customs of Mecca until they died. Now, but if you're saying you are better than them, then please explain to us how you're better. These were honorable, good human beings. The Prophet doesn't say anything. So he says, not only that, but you have caused Quraysh an endless headache. You have caused divisions in our society. You have made it so that there is rancor and division within a single family and a single clan. Not only that, but you've ruined our reputation because tribes all around, all around Quraysh are saying that Quraysh has a sorcerer and that Quraysh has an insane person that keeps preaching to the, to the visitors to the Kaaba when they come to Mecca. You have been a bad omen. So in other words, he's first this, this style of, you know, uh, mentioning res respectable human beings and people that the Prophet ﷺ cared about and loved and saying, well, you know, are you better than them? But then second, the guilt trip of, look at what is happening to our society. This, our society is, not only that, but our society is on the verge of raising swords, one against the other.
the inverse of, of infighting. And you've ruined our reputation. So, listen, if it is money that you want, we can make you rich. If it is that you want to feel company and prestige, in other words, you, you, you want social status, well, we can arrange for you to marry 10 women from the best women of Quraysh. And so he, he goes on with this narrative and the Prophet then says, looks at him and says, Farakht, are you done? Call an He says, yes, I'm done. So he doesn't say a word as, as Uba is going through this whole thing. Until he says, are you done? And then he says, yes, I'm done. So the Prophet at this point starts reciting Surah Fussilat. So, so on so forth until he gets to the ayah so this is until he gets to ayah number um, 12 no 13 So if they turn away, tell them that your fate is a calamity like the calamity that fell Ad and Thamud. So this is like he's, he listens until the Prophet reaches this point. When he, the Prophet reaches this point, Uqba says, Hasbak, Hasbak, Ma'indak, Ghayra Hada. In another narrative, the Uqba puts his hand on the Prophet's mouth and says, Stop. In, in this version, Uqba says, Wait, wait, you don't have anything else to say but this? And the Prophet says, No, I don't. So Uqba doesn't go back to Quraysh. And they are worried that after having wanted to talk to Muhammad that he's converted to Islam. So they find Uqba and they say, what happened? You, we're, we're waiting for you to come back and report on your conversation with Muhammad. And he says, مَا تَرَقْتُ شَيْءًا أَرَى أَنَّكُمْ تُكَلِّمُونَهُ بِهِ إِلَّا كَلَّمْتَهُ there is nothing that you could tell this man that I didn't tell him. I've said everything that needs to be said. So they said, فَهَلْ أَجَابَكَ Did he answer you? So he said, Udbar responds by saying, مَا فَهِمْتُ شَيْئًا مِمَّا قَالَ I didn't understand anything from what he said. Except that he said that a calamity is going to befall you. 
يكلمك الرجل بالعربية وما تدري ما قال what is this you know you're, you're a master of Arabic the man speaks to you in Arabic and you say you didn't understand anything he said قال لا والله ما فهمت شيئا مما قال غير ذكر الصاعقة I didn't understand anything from what he said other than he warned of a calamity. Now, Surat Fusilat coming at this point from a persecuted people for non-Muslims what they heard from Surat Fusilat was precisely that, what Udba understood, is that it is, here is this man who is severely persecuted and he's telling us that, you know, I'm warning you of a horrible fate. And so, predictably, the Meccans were dismissive. And, if anything, it intensified the persecution against Muslims. But, interestingly, in all the narratives, Udba doesn't allow the Prophet to recite beyond Ayah number 12 or Ayah number 13. So we don't know if the other Meccans later on heard the entire surah, we know Muslims did, but the majority, the non-Muslims, we know that Udba didn't, at least not for a long time. And interestingly enough, some commentators understood from Surat Fusilat that basically what Surat Fusilat is saying is that it is promising Mecca that they're going to be defeated. So in Quran, a lot of Quranic commentaries they say well, Surat Fusilat predicts what will happen years down the road in the Battle of Badr and what will happen years down the road when Mecca is finally defeated. But of course, there is a, 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 there is a problem here, right? And that is the ayah says, فَإِنْ أَعْرَضُوا فَقُلْ أَمْضَرْتُكُمْ صَاعِقَةً مِثْلَ صَاعِقَةِ عَادٍ وَثَمُودٍ If they turn away, tell them, I am warning you about the possibility, not the promise, but the possibility that your fate would be utter destruction like what befell Ad Wathamud. And they were destroyed by natural causes, by by natural causes sent their way by Allah. Wind, or earthquakes, or rain, 
But Mecca has a very different fate. And many of the Meccans convert in the span of the decade between the Hijrah and the eventual defeat of Mecca. But more than that, by the time Mecca is defeated, the majority converts. So that's one, um, I, I don't want to use a word that's too harsh, but um, let's say one inconsistency that to, to say that it's there to, pro, to threaten them with a calamity and that's the point of Surah Fusilat. But then the other thing is that to say that that was the point of Surah Fusilat ignores the rest of the Surah. So put it simply, Although you find this quite often in traditional tafsir, that Surat Fussilat was there to warn Meccans of defeat, to tell them that you're going to eventually be defeated, I don't think that was the point of the Surah at all. And as we all see, inshallah, there is no, that's, that's, That's not what the surah is saying. Okay. So, but if we understand why, because Ogba himself thought he, this is the only thing he understood from the surah, is that there is a threat. Um, so let's go back then and unpack surah Fusilat the way we're supposed to. So, there is no hope in this majority. But yet, you continue to call upon them to come to Allah and to seek forgiveness, knowing fully well that they're not going to accept your message. Then, those that this is now seven those who do not give alms and who disbelieve in the hereafter this gave Quranic commentators of all types of orientations and methodologies, long pause, because they're disbelievers. They don't believe. So why mention zakat? Why zakat of, of, of all things? And what does zakat mean at this point one, we are in Mecca. The, 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 the technical legal zakat was not decreed till Medina. But two, what does it mean to say that the disbelievers don't give the zakat? And three, 
why of all the sins, zakah? So, some, especially from the Sufi-esque or uh, schools of thought, said, well, zakah in this context means zakatun nafs, that la yatuna la yatuna zakah means that they do not purify their souls and they disbelieve because zakah could is is whatever literally zakah is what you give as a purification this is i mean it, it is possible that that would be zakatun nafs but Grammatically, it would be an odd construction to say, to raise the issue of zakat al-nafs by saying, la yu'tuna zakat. So, the plain language seems to equate or create an, a nexus between disbelief and not giving to the poor as al-farra said in his tafsir inma ju'ila man'u az-zakaa maqrunan bil-kufr la'anna ahabb al-shay' ila al-insan malu wa huwa shaqiq ruhu فَإِذَا بَذَلَهُ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ فَذَلِكَ أَقْوَى دَلِيلٍ عَلَى اسْتِقَامَتِهِ So Al-Farra is saying, or Ibn Al-Farra is saying, that Zakat was coupled with Kufr because the dearest thing to the human heart is money. Not only that, but it is shaqiq rawh, meaning that it is the 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 um, uh, the companion of the soul. For believers, that's not what it, the way it should, it should be, but in reality, for so many people, believers and unbelievers, money is the true companion of the soul. It is the hardest thing for human being to part with and when they part with it they do it very consciously and it remains heavy on their psyche they, they remember what they gave and you might not remember what you've said to people you might not remember how much time you gave people there are all types of things that you don't remember but you most often remember who you gave money to it is often the demon of the soul as we'll see in the rest of the surah 
So, la yu'tuna zakaa. In surat al-fussilat, at this point, it is a biting social critique of the nature of Mecca. We've already encountered this, but it is flagged again in Surah Fusilat. This is an immoral society. And it's an immoral society because the rich don't take care of the poor. And in this type of society, as we will see, disbelief, kufr, spreads and grows. And as we will see, it is even beyond this. The demonic becomes a part of the society. This will come a little bit. Again, Remember, if you know anything about the seerah, the thing that strikes you the most about Muslims when they go to Medina is what? Is that economic ethic of sharing. Some of the stories of sharing are even exaggerated. I mean, when we read what I think are just ridiculous stories about sharing you know, offers to, I'll divorce my wife so you can marry her and things like that. But what, what is, what abounds in the tradition is our stories of where does this ethic come from? Muslims often forget that. Where did it come from? This is how we, we find, we, we track it back to what educated these people to have the type of attitudes that they did. Okay. So, they are inequitable when it comes to material things. And they don't believe in the hereafter, so they don't believe in accountability. And that, for the Quranic outlook, that is part of why they're inequitable. Because they think, well, why should we help anyone? I mean, either we help someone and we we get the payoff through a good reputation, but if if it's not going to affect our reputation, if we help someone, then why shouldn't we? There's no, there's no hereafter. So those, this is now a, those who believe in God and do good, their reward is continuous. It means that it doesn't stop. And that it is not held over them in men, meaning, um, Allah treats them with gratitude, which is which is a, a way of honoring people. قل أينكم تكفرون بالذي خلق الأرض في يومين وتجعلون له أنداد ذلك رب العالمين. And immediately the Quran moves from that 
to the irrationality of belief, of disbelief. It says, for you do not believe in God who created this earth in two days. And that means a kuffah, means you make, you, you associate with God equals. The equals could be things like idols, but it also could be things like human beings that you obey. So in a lot of even the traditional tafsir, they say, that you don't really, whether you say you believe in God or not, but your system of deference is to sources of authority other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And those sources of authority, those akufah, those equals to Allah, are often other human beings that you defer to, you follow. Now, as again was pointed out by so many theologians, this issue of andad is, is, a, is, is a very serious one. Because you could be a Muslim and a believer, but you could also have that in real life, you really don't obey God. You obey your mother and father, you obey your friends, you obey um, you, this or that sheikh, you obey, you follow the flag of your country, whatever your biases are. But your relationship with Allah is not there. What is there is that you want the pleasure of someone. You, you, you want the pleasure of rulers in your country, you want the pleasure of your family, you want the pleasure of your friends, you want the pleasure of whatever it is. But your relationship with Allah is not existent. And dead lillah is a very big problem. And because we'll see the consequences of andad lillah. If you want irtiqa, if you want elevation in the path of Allah, you must confront your andad. You must confront those that you effectively treat as the points of authority that often replace Allah's role altogether. And you must confront and cleanse. Irtaqa is not possible unless you do that. The elevation, I am telling you, the access to the path of Allah often what blocks a human being's ability to develop a personal relationship with Allah is that they have and dead. They have these uh, 
not not shuraka, because shuraka is someone that you think of as a partner. And you say, well, there's no partner to God because no one shares in the creation. You know, no one has the same power of God. But and that are people that you are effectively deferring to as points of authority and persuasion other than God. Now, in the traditional tafsir and in the Sufi tafsir, you find a lot written about how God created the, 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 this, this point about created the earth in two days. Um, um, and, and then it says that and made Rawasi made mountains that hold the crust of the earth down. Uh, 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 where, where is it? Now, this is 10. He placed firm mountains therein, rising above it, blessed it, and apportioned its means of sustenance therein in four days alike. Uh, so, and the Sa'ilin, the two days and four days equals six days, all of that stuff. Um, and there are a lot of hadiths that were reported about it. None of it is reliable. The, nearly every hadith on this is marfu'a, meaning that it, it, it was attributed to the Prophet, although it is, although the, there, is a, there is a serious link missing, let's put it that way. But anyway, I'm not going to pause at this because to talk about days, you're talking about time. If you talk about days in the sense of four days, six days, whatever. But time is a product of the Earth rotating and it, how the, the the what Allah created between sun and moon, but beyond that, beyond that earthly time, you're talking about time and space before outside the realm of the earth. So a yam cannot have the meaning of days that we have in the earthly realm. Ayyam must have the other meaning for Ayyam and that is periods. Yawm is a period. It's not necessarily a day. So when Allah says I've created it in two days means two periods or four days means four periods. Now, how long is this period? Only Allah knows. Thousands of years. It's not earthly time. All we can know is Allah is saying it, there were periods in the development of the thing. Uh, 
So don't pay attention to any of the hadith that has been reported about this because none of it is reliable. Also, in traditional tafsir, they tell you that Allah then decided the fate of things, meaning that Allah decided forever, it was in two days, in the heavens, who's going to be born, how long they live, who they're going to marry, when they're going to die. And I think that's speculation and it's, it's attributing to God what we don't know. We don't know that. When Allah says that, Allah set the laws for the cosmos. But when does Allah decide who's going to be born and, and how long they're going to live? Only Allah knows that. And it's not for us to speculate upon things like that. I think it is just, it's, it's acting beyond our authority. And it's conjecture beyond, it's conjecture about what we don't understand. And we have no basis for it. Um, so, okay. But notice Ayah 11. For those who write about the scientific miracles about the Quran, I know that they put a lot of emphasis on this Ayah because of its reference to gases, Dukhan, how gases come together to form the reality that we are aware of. And that Allah, but the expression that come willingly or unwillingly. And it is as Allah conveying to us as if this universe is alive, responding to Allah's will by saying, we will come willingly. As you get closer to Allah, as you get closer to Allah, and you have enough experiences with the divine, with the realm of the Malakut, something clicks in your psyche where you finally understand the way that the cosmos is in fact alive. We, we exist on a living planet and we, within a living cosmos. And the most amazing thing is when it seeps in your heart and your soul, the extent to which this cosmos is in fact alive. But as you can imagine, these expressions, especially in the Sufi tradition, um, which I'm not emphasizing for many different reasons this time, but it, 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 it plays a huge role in the Sufi imagination. Um, so, and it's read allegor allegorically that 
that this is not really a reference to the, the, the gases and formation of heavens, but it's an allegory for the human soul, etc., etc. But I, I don't, this is not what I don't want to emphasize this time. Um, okay. In 12, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَقَضَاهُنَّ سَبْعَ سَمَوَاتٍ فِي يَوْمَيْنِ وَأَوْحَى فِي كُلِّ سَمَاءٍ أَمْرَهَا وَزَيَّنَّ السَّمَاءَ الدُّنْيَا بِمَصَابِيحٍ وَحِفَظًا ذَلِكَ تَقْدِيرُ الْعَزِيزِ الْعَلِيمِ Allah set the order of the cosmos in policy 12 is translated Um, and we adorned the lowest heaven with lamps and a guard and guards now why is this important because as we will see in another surah I believe a surah to Safat Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala emphasizes a principle that for us perhaps it, it was our modern minds it's 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 taken for granted but that beliefs that your fate is affected by the stars and what happens in the stars and the powers of the stars which was very very dominant at the time the Quran is being revealed. The Quran takes a position of saying the heavens don't affect you anymore. That, or that belief has no basis anymore. If you believe that there are powers in the heavens such as superpowers, the heavens is under lock and guard or under absolute control of the divine. What affects you is the divine will and what you will for yourself. That's it. The paradigm shift that Islam introduces is very critical for Islam also being the final message and the Quran being the final message. The end of the age of superstition which is underscored in the Quran in numerous ways. But that's the significance of that repeated reference in the Quran that the Sama'i dunya bimasabih wa hifaza. That yes, there, there, there are light, the light that comes from the stars help you navigate, but hifaza. That it's, it's like. It's all under Allah's control. Don't allow your imagination to think that there's anything up there in the heavens that affects you like horoscope and etc. All that belief. Okay. Then after all of that, we get to what Utbah responded to, verse 13. So, when they turn away 
or if they turn away, when you tell them all of that, warn them that you could have a fate like the fate of Ad and Thamud. Now, why Ad and Thamud in Surah Fusilat? Because Ad and Thamud were the two tribes that Quraysh was reportedly familiar with. They, they still remembered the fate of Ad and Thamud in their mythology. And according to some pre-Islamic poetry, but it's hard, very hard to verify this historically, that there were dunes or physical remains that they, that Arabic superstition or mythology said were the homes of Ad and Thamud. Were they, were they, was it a mistaken identity? We don't know. I mean, it's, it, the, the, the evidence is very difficult to track. But, Ad and Samud are the tribes of the prophets Hud and Salih. <coughs> and Hud and Salih are two prophets that, السلام, that are before the prophet Ibrahim. So according to Many of the sources you have Adam, and then you have a prophet called Shish, which we don't know much about at all. But after Shish, there's Idris, who's mentioned in the Quran, and again, we don't know much about Idris. And after Idris, we have the prophet Nuh, who's very famous, and then Hud and Saleh, and then Ibrahim. And Hud and Saleh are from the line of prophets that are from Sam. The, the descendants of Nuh, you have Sam, and Hud and Saleh are this part of the, of the branch where Hud and Saleh and Shu'aib and you have Muhammad and on this side of the branch are Ishaq, Ayyub, Yusuf, Yaqub, all the biblical prophets. So Hud and Saleh are um, in the side where you can say the where the Arab descent is. And so they are a part of the memory of Arabs themselves. And it quickly then turns to a narrative about first the tribe of Ad. And Ad, like the Meccans, object that how could a messenger from God be a mere mortal, a human being? And that 
they demanded from from the prophethood السلام, that Allah would send or they told the prophethood Allah should have sent angels if this was really a message from God فاستكبروا في الأرض بغير الحق وقالوا من أشد منا قوة من أشد منا قوة they arrogantly with full or uh, arrogantly confident in their own power and their own um, they were uh, by the measures of their age were the superpower of their age I mean they, they of course there's a lot of superstition and mythology that they were very tall and very strong that they were giants that they could you know do remarkable physical feats but if you if you read this with a different with a more you know empirical perspective they were clearly a a dominant tribe in in the that region that is Yemen Arabia and um, were technologically for the standard were technologically com very advanced compared to everyone around them and Surah Fussilat tells you then فَأَرْسَلْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ رِيحًا صَرْصَرًا فِي أَيَّامٍ نِحِسَابٍ We've sent, this is now 16, so we sent رِيحًا صَرْصَرًا The study Quran translated as howling wind in days of ill fortune that they may taste the, the, the punishment of disgrace in this life and so on. Um, Asar is is a word it describes is cold. When you say um, sar could use the word sar could you could mean cold and asurra could mean a cry or a howl. So the wind that afflicted that tribe, that persistent wind that ended up destroying them, was loud wind, was probably very cold wind. When a hisat, which was which is trans, translated in the study Quran as days of ill fortune. Nahisat um, could mean several things. Could mean shidat, could mean mutatabi'at, could mean baridat. It could mean days that were cold. It could mean consecutive days. It could mean extremely trying and difficult days. Anyway, I mean, there's, we're not going to pause at this. Uh, for long, because the point is, is that this wind, wind destroys their civilization. And then we move on to Thamud, 
واما ثمود فهديناهم فاستحبوا العمي فاستحبوا العمي على الهدى فاخذتهم صاعقه العذاب This is 17. So Samud, this, uh, this, this expression, فهديناهم, we guided them. Did Samud first respond to the Prophet Saleh and then reneged? When it says فهديناهم, we guided them. Does this mean that they actually, when the miracle first happened, the miracle of the camel first happened, did they first move towards belief, then renege, or does Hadaynahum mean that we, we've sent them guidance and they turned away? I mean, although you find that the Fasir, they go into long discussions about this, I don't think it's, unless I'm missing something, I don't think it's very, uh, something we need to pause at. And they were destroyed by Isra'iqa, which is, how does the study Quran translate? Oh, the Quran just translates it as thunderbolt. Um, I mean, Saqa could be. The problem with thunderbolt is we don't know what thunderbolt means. Right? Saqa could be. Anything from an earthquake, um, it, a tsunami could be a sa'aqa, an earthquake could be a sa'aqa, a, uh, a sudden storm like a huge tornado could be a sa'aqa. Uh, the point is, it was a very destructive event and a sudden event. Of course, they were given three days, but they still didn't believe and continued to party it up during these three days before their destruction, as we've said before, in the case of uh, Samud. Okay. So, with this warning, We, there is a promise, we've encountered this, this sort of structure before, a message, arrogance, arrogance that comes from overconfidence in your own, in your own ability as a people, a, your sense of security, and events that spell out destruction. The destruction could be in a form of a persistent event that sort of wears down your, 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 your resistance, that tears you apart, or it could be in a sudden cataclysmic event as in the case of uh, Samud. But 
But this is not the fate that will befall Mecca. But we'll see in a second why Surah Al-Safat flags this in particular. Okay. So, then Surah Al-Safat moves on to the thing that is at the heart of the Meccan injustice and the rejection of zakah and the rejection of belief. Their, their resistance to the idea of accountability. That there are consequences and there are and there is judgment. And it tells them something that they have repeatedly laughed and sneered at. And that's the idea that their own body parts will bear witness against them. And that their hearing and their eyesight and their skin will, will bear witness against them. In the traditional tefasir, they, they, they pause often at your skin bearing witness against you. And they say that in um, Old Arabic, the word skin could often be used to refer to your private parts. When you want to say someone's private part, you could just say their skin. So if you said, I saw their skin, you could actually be saying, I saw their private part. So in the traditional tefasir, they say, well, perhaps what Allah is saying is that their private parts will bear, will bear witness against them. Their eyesight, their hearing, and their private parts. And in most of the traditional tefasir, they they say, well, you know, if, if Allah can give anything the power of speech. In Sufi Ask Tafsir, where they understand this allegorically, and they, it is a state of, and in the hereafter, where you, where you finally, your defenses, and all the excuses that you lived, you know, you live your life surrounded by excuses and layers of excuses upon layers of excuses. And so much so that you believe your own excuses. You, you end up actually not knowing what was a lie and what was a truth. You lose track. And in the hereafter, at that point, the one thing you are given is absolute transparency of insight. You see. Now all the pretenses, all the lies, everything has fallen apart. You, you no longer even uh, have, you no longer want to protect anyone and you no longer feel the type of a blind association with anyone. And at this point, that transparency includes 
recalling with perfect memory what your eyes did, what your ears did, what your tongue did, and what your body, your skin did. And so in the Sufi Askafasir, they often say that it means perfect recollection. And the what bears wit- witness against you is your conscience. That your conscience basically says, yeah, you know, all the lies have now evaporated. And here's what your tongue did, here's what your eyes did, and so on. And we've talked about this before, that it is rather striking that in our age, we can imagine with what modern technology has has shown us, is that you can be show, shown effectively a projection of yourself. You can see yourself committing the sins that you've committed. And I, I personally, Allahu alam, Allah knows best, but my prayers have convinced me that this is in fact what this is referring to. That this is a very difficult thing that in the hereafter you will actually witness yourself doing everything that you've done. Um, and that that's what bearing your eyes, your 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 ears, your tongue, bearing witness is that you. And that's actually, I mean, as I said before, I don't want to see myself committing the sins I've committed. It's horrible. That's the worst thing is to actually see yourself, but this time without the excuses, and to actually watch yourself as if on on film. Um, and of course on 22 that biting commentary that here it is I'm presenting you with the truth of what how you've lived your life while you thought that it is impossible for accountability to, to be had and for there to be a record of what you've done and you've thought that Allah doesn't know what you've done but indeed Allah does this is of course um, ظنكم الذي ظننتم بربكم أرضاكم فأصبحتم من الخاسرين. Now, twenty-three becomes important in Surah Fussilat because Allah says, "This is what you." How? Every time I think that the study Quran is like going to have a word that I can't think of, but they always translate everything very plainly. So, it's, so they translated as "This is what you thought about your Lord." Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, okay. Um, why is this important? Because, and actually theologians spend a lot of time talking about this. There is a hadith from, from the Prophet says, I am as you think I am, or you will be treated as you believed your Lord will treat you. Now, this doesn't mean take God for granted, but what it means is if you lived your life doubting God, then you can't count on God in the hereafter. If you lived your life believing God is just and believing in God's mercy and believing in God's compassion, so if you've lived sinning, but because you believed in God, you also lived repenting. You are in much better shape than someone who lived oblivious. If you lived believing that God is cruel, what you will get in the hereafter is cruelty. If you lived believing that God is unjust, God is incapable of justice. God or not, God would not commit injustice. But if you believe God is unjust, then your fate with God is not. For Sufis in particular, this is this concept becomes at the pulsating heart of Sufism. Your understanding of God is a direct nexus to your enlightenment. If you understand that, the self and the sifat, the attributes of God, and a personal relationship with Allah is impossible unless Allah is part of your thought and your psyche. So to the extent that you are constantly engaged with thinking about the that, the, 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 the it of God, the, the essence, the truth, and the sifat, the attributes of Allah, you elevate and rise with that. But if your heart is full of doubts or full of suspicions or full of projections, so this is a very big point, especially in the in the Sufi literature, but even in traditional tafsir. So you never thought well of God and as a result your treatment is not going to be 
a good one. Okay. فَإِنْ يَصْبِرُوا فَالنَّارُ مَسْوًا لَهُمْ وَإِنْ يَسْتَعْتِبُوا فَمَا هُمْ مِنَ الْمُعْتَبِينَ So, and whether they are able, whether they are um, are patient or whether they beg and plead is not going to make a difference. Al-istatab is talabu al-rida. When you, when you ask for someone's forgiveness, that's istatab. Um, it will not make a difference. Okay. So then we get to 25. وَقَيَّدْنَا لَهُمْ قُرَنَاءَ فَزَيَّنُوا لَهُمْ مَا بَيْنَ أَيْدِيهِمْ وَمَا خَلْفَهُمْ وَحَقَّ عَلَيْهِمُ الْقَوْلِ فِي أُمَمٍ قَدْ خَلَتْ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ مِنَ الْجِنِّ وَالْإِنْسِ إِنَّهُمْ كَانُوا خَاسِرِينَ Twenty-five then becomes very important because it tells you that that Allah allows them then to be associated with companions. And in all the tafsir, traditional or Sufi, they'll tell you that the companions, that your worst companion is yourself. If the self is shaitan, if yourself becomes demonic, then you have the worst companion. Beyond the self is a demon, is a jinn, is an actual jinn demon. And the third is a human shaitan. So what Allah, by deviating, by drifting away from the divine, the self could become demonic. You could actually get a companion with a demonic jinn, and we've talked about how the jinn are attracted to demonic auras, like sharks are attracted to blood. And they sniff human beings, and the evil of the jinn, if you have an aura that is the aura of a liar, a cheater, an adulterer, uh, a fornicator, um, you know, all types of sins, you, they are attracted to you like, like bloodhounds, like sharks in water. And they find you and they attach themselves to you and they become your companions. You, you, you might, you, you don't see them, but they're there. And the longer they accompany you, the, the, the harder it is for you to turn back. And third, are what are equally dangerous, if not more dangerous, are human beings who are demons. Shayateen and ins. Because when human beings are demons, they do horrible things like physical violence and horrible, horrible crimes. 
But notice here the reference to this is the law not just to individuals but to nations of past nations that don't resist the demonic collectively follow the path of the demonic You know, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you visit certain areas and you can literally feel the injustice in the air. And you visit other areas and it's easier to breathe. Because, and quite, because if you have a nation with individuals who are, where, where there's, the, you know, a numbers game where there are a lot of evil individuals and these individuals have attracted a lot of the demonic to themselves. It, that nation. So keep this in mind as you think about the fate of Ad and Thamud as nations that invited the demonic unto themselves. وَقَالَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لَا تَسْمَعُوا لِهَذَا الْقُرْآنِ وَالْغَوْ فِيهِ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَغْلِبُونَ So, then it takes you back after explaining, it started out by telling you about nations that have gone through the demonic path. And it alerted you to the, the, that fate leads inevitably to destruction. It passed away from your Lord. And what is the problem with these nations? Is that they forget accountability. And they forget judgment. And what is accountability fundamentally about? It's confrontation with the self, the truth of you who you are. And what you believe about your God and what your relationship with your Lord is. And then it has a very concrete uh, effect and that is the role of the demonic in human life, whether that demonic is the self or the demonic is jinn or the demonic is our companions, friends and family that have horrible influence on you. Then it takes you back with an implication that is talking about Mecca, but it's clearly talking about an attitude. What is the attitude? It all goes back to your relationship with this Quran. Twenty-six. And those who disbelieve say, listen not to this Quran, but speak dismissively of it, that happily you might prevail. Okay. Let us Quran Don't listen to the Quran. Ignore the Quran. Walghawfi means 
it's like saying you could a lagu for shit is you could cover it up, you could ignore it. That's lagu. But a more precise way of saying it is an obfuscated, cause confusion about it. is when you for okay to take a a a someone could be listening to to every, all these halakhas and they say yes 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 okay so yeah yeah you know the quran says all these wonderful things but how about the, the ayah that says you can beat women that's obfuscating it because you, you are It's not a sincere attempt to understand the message of the Quran, of this Quran, or the 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 project of this of this Quran, but it is obstructionism, and then it takes you to the sort of logical conclusion to those who effectively become Allah's enemies. Uh, this is uh, in 28. In that, when the truth of accountability confronts them, they live their life failing to confront themselves and always blaming other than the self for their failures. They live their life pointing the finger at others. Their faults are not their faults. Their lies are not their lies. Their obfuscations are not their obfuscations. And what do they do in the hereafter? Exactly the same. This is in 29. When they confront the truth, they immediately look for who is to blame among the human beings that they have encountered and the jinn that they've encountered in life. And they cry out to God and say, put these people under our feet. Meaning it's a, it, it, it's a symbolic, you know. Uh, they're to blame for our plight. So... Let us take our frustrations out on them. But it's it's an interest. I mean, it's a it's a, a, a something not to be missed. That that same attitude. You, you live an oblivious life because you're always pointing the finger at others for your failures, and in the hereafter, that's exactly what you do. You start looking for who else who's to blame for your predicament. Then it's going to, to move on to the, actually those who did things the right way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us about the Qareen, the Qurana, the Qurana, those that Allah allows to become our associates, whether it's the self, 
that is the Qareen in, in, a, in a bad sense or the jinn or other human beings that are shayateen. Um, but then the other side of it is in verse 30. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا رَبُّنَا ثُمَّ رَبُّنَا اللَّهُ ثُمَّ اسْتَقَامُوا تَنَزَّلُوا عَلَيْهِمِ الْمَلَائِكَةُ أَلَّا تَخَافُوا وَلَا تَحْزَنُوا وَبْشِرُوا بِالْجَنَّةِ الَّتِي كُنْتُمْ تُوْعَدُونَ You notice in, in 30, there are a couple of things that immediately catch your attention. قَالُوا رَبُّنَا اللَّهُ ثُمَّ اسْتَقَامُوا They, they said, they declared, they embraced, Allah is God, our, and wastaqamu. Now, astaqamu, they, 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 they uh, in this study Quran, let's see how they translated it. They translated it, they said, Lord is God, and then stand firm. Istaqamu, it is embracing a disciplined path. Values are called qiyam. Qiyam, why? Because they are the normativities, the norms that you embrace and you stand firm with these norms. And because you stand firm with these norms, these are values. They become Qiyam. And As-Sirat Al-Mustaqim, the path that you adhere to out of discipline. So you become a principled path. That's why we say, in mustaqim, guide us towards the straight path, but in, in reality, it is guide us towards the disciplined path, the path where we live a purposeful, disciplined life. فَقَالُوا رَبُّنَا اللَّهُ ثُمَّ اسْتَقَامُوا They translated their belief into a disciplined path. Now, there are many traditions that are around this verse. So, Umar ibn al-Khattab said, when once he was asked about قَالُوا رَبُّنَا اللَّهُ ثُمَّ اسْتَقَامُوا So he said, استقاموا بطاعة الله ولم يراوه روغان الثعلب that you obey God and you don't يراوه uh, is to to um, to play around to sort of take the back road the way that a fox does so that you, in other words, that you, you, you commit to the path of God and you do not wiggle out of it. 
by all types of excuses, all types of confusions and obfuscations. Uh, there is another hadith where a man uh, approaches the Prophet والسلام, and says, Murni bi amrin fil Islam la as'alu anhu ahada. That tell me, give me advice about how to be a good Muslim. And advice that would guide me for the rest of my life. So the Prophet said, Say, I believe in Allah, and then means adhere in a principled way. The man said, Okay, but what should be the what is it that I should be most cautious of? And the Prophet said, your tongue. Now, there are a lot of traditions like that, whether it's the tongue or um, some other advice, but they all go back to that principle, that central theme of a principled life, a conscientious life. Okay. So, those who in fact live in such a way, the angels will descend upon them and comfort them. Do not fear. Do not fear and don't be sad. Now, traditional tafsir uh, often emphasize that these, this refers to the point of death. That upon death, those who lived a pious life are approached by angels and comforted. Sufi asked tafsir, emphasize that angels don't just descend upon you at the point of death, but a person who walks that path will often be visited by angels in their life, and even angels could become a, not a single angel becomes a companion, but that they they develop a company with angels. Um, I tend to to see things more in line with the Sufi Sufi esque tafsir on this point. I I do think angels are a very much a part of our life. In my own experiences in life people that I trust and I believe um, who've had direct experiences with angelic powers. Moreover, a lot of what the Sufi 
um, Nietzsche describes as mukashafat as these these exceptional experiences where you experience the divine, the supernal. Um, these life-altering experiences where you are allowed to see something beyond the veil of this material world. And of course, depending on your level of development, it's whether you can see it at will or see it as, as, uh, as an exception. Um, either case, it is very difficult to deny the role of the angelic in in a life of luminosity and purity. So I I tend to think that Tanazalu alayhum malaika does refer not just to death but before death, and that often in numerous occasions um, you are comforted you are secured, you are protected. Um, and it continues as long as it doesn't go to your pride and as long as it doesn't um, inflate your ego because nothing, nothing brings an end to these types of experiences like the ego. Okay. نحن أولياؤكم في الحياة الدنيا وفي الآخرة ولكم فيها ما تشتهي أنفسكم ولكم فيها ما تدعون So notice 32 We are your awliya We are your aides, your partners In this life and in the hereafter And that's why I tend to agree with the Sufi-esque approach um, Sufi literature when they talk about نَحْنُ أَوْلِيَاءُكُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا what that literally means in Sufi literature الْوِلَايَةَ مِنَ اللَّهِ wilaya is always min Allah that the, the um, that type of partnership and that type of support is always from Allah although the angels can act as Allah's agents and al-wilaya in this context always means al-mahabba, love. So, nahnu awliya'ukum fil hayat al-dunya means we love you. So, when you ask a Sufi, what is it that you want? And they say, I want al-wilaya. It means I am seeking to love and be loved. Um, and here, Surah Al-Safat is, uh, uh, sorry, Surah Fusilat is gearing up to its main point, as we will see. Nuzulan min rahim This is a remarkable ayah, as short as it is. The language is just beyond beautiful. Nuzulan min ghafoor rahim 
It is like saying, let's see how to say the word. The study Quran translates it a welcome from one forgiving merciful. Nuzilan min ghafur rahim it's literally saying like a gift from your Lord the most more forgiving, the most merciful. It draws a beautiful picture of wilaya, a love, a divine love extended, a divine love shared, a strengthened by angelic visitations that comfort you, that bring purity and peace to your life. And then the penultimate statement, وَمَنْ أَحْسَنُ قَوْلًا مِمَّنْ دَعَى إِلَى اللَّهِ وَعَمِلَ صَالِحًا وَقَالَ إِنَّنِي مِنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ So the conclusion of this is, and what could be better than someone who Allah invites to God and did good and declared I am a Muslim again the language is unbelievable notice the progression here First, sorry, Allah, which is premised on al-amal al-salih, which is premised on being a Muslim. Now, why why does it say qala and said innani min al-muslimin? And here, commentators tell tell you that well, it is it is the declaration that you declare it with pride and joy. So what is the critical point here? If you're a Muslim, but you're one of those people who's constantly talking about how miserable it is to be a Muslim, that's not, that's, you're, you're out of that formula. If you're a Muslim, but you're constantly talking about how, how a bummer it is to be a Muslim, how hard it is to be a Muslim, how depressing it is to be a Muslim, how horrible it is to be a Muslim, you're out of this formula. You don't have wilaya, you don't have angels. To be a Muslim, you must carry your Islam with pride and joy, realizing it's a gift, it's a blessing. Only then, is wilaya open to you and the angelic visitations open to you then that translates into good deeds but it good deeds translates into da'ilallah now you call to Allah you invite to Allah you invite to Allah through good deeds by being a good example so if you're a bad example, 
you, that's not a da'wah illallah. Everything you do that translates into the attributes of divinity and calls people to Allah is da'a illallah. So much so that there are traditions that Aisha said that this verse applies to Bilal and his adhan because she, she was so impressed by the fact that Bilal beautifully did the adhan and said, that's da'a illallah. Look at that. He, he constantly calls to Allah. But of course, it is, it is, it is well beyond that. Of, because da'wah illallah is, is through qala innani minal muslimin to carry your Islam with pride and joy and amila salihan and to do good and that translates into da'a illallah. Okay. Now, Surat Fusilat comes to a point here where it's going to deliver to you a critical moral lesson that will reverberate throughout the Islamic tradition and throughout humanity. وَلَا تَسْتَوِي الْحَسَنَةُ وَلَا السَّيِّئَةُ إِدْفَعْ بِالَّتِي هِيَ أَحْسَنُ فَإِذَا الَّذِي بَيْنَكَ وَبَيْنَهُ عَدَاوَةٌ كَأَنَّهُ وَلِيٌّ حَمِيمٌ This is 31. وَمَا يُلَقَّاهَا إِلَّا الَّذِينَ صَبَرُوا وَمَا يُلَقَّاهَا إِلَّا ذُو حَظٍ عَظِيمٌ وَإِمَّا so first, you're a Muslim, know that good and evil are never the same. There is no such thing for a Muslim, well, I am doing evil because I suffered evil. There is no such thing. Good and bad can never be perilous. So, what do you want, Allah? I want your response to evil to be good. But not only that, I want you to repel hardship and offense and hurt with what is good. If you do that, who is your enemy today will become your close ally tomorrow. So, Repel anger, well first, repel falsehood with truth. Repel ignorance with enlightenment. 
Repel anger with patience and forgiveness. Repel evil and hurt with forbearance and pardon. So much so that the Prophet ﷺ said, Sill man qata'ak, wa'ati man mana'ak. If someone treats you unfairly and severs their relations with you, mend these relations. Go and fix the relations with them. And if someone refuses to give you, you give them. Sufi-esque literature took this to incredible heights. But even traditional literature, you find a lot written about this. But here's just some of the samples. If someone criticizes you, you praise them. And if someone denies you, you give them. And if someone cuts their relationships with you, you extend them. And your response to anger must be patience. And your response to ignorance must be forbearance. And your responses, your response to an offense must be forgiveness. Now, this, no question, was not easy. So we even have a tradition, well, before I get to this, Anas Malik has a very nice uh, <laughs> tradition about this. Anas ibn Malik said, uh, a man, a man cursed him out. Man went up to Anas and cussed him out. Um, so he didn't respond, and they asked him, "Why didn't you answer the man?" I mean, the man cast you out in public in front of us, and he said, "Well, in kana sadiqa, in kana sadiqa, ghafar Allahu li, wa in kana kaziba, ghafar Allahu la." If he was true, if if what he, what he said about me was truthful, then may Allah forgive me. And if it was untrue, then may Allah forgive him. It's amazing. The hadith that I'm thinking of, and I, I can't, I didn't note it down, but a man. I have a vague memory that of me writing it, but when you're working on very little sleep, I guess. Okay, a man went to the Prophet ﷺ, 
and um, no, no, they, they, sorry, there were two men who were fighting, and they started cursing each other out, and the Prophet um, saw them. So he, he told them, shall I teach you something that if you say it, that your anger would go would dissolve. And they looked at him and they didn't answer, say, Say So one of the men said, Do you think I'm insane? That just saying is going to calm me down? So the Prophet looked at him and recited verse 36 reports like this and there are a few of them tells you that even Muslims it's not that they you know they, they're not all Anas and Nomadic Many of them struggled with this. But remember, this is full of Surat Fusilat, right? And it tells you then, وَمَا يُلَقَّاهَا إِلَّا الَّذِينَ صَبَرُوا وَمَا يُلَقَّاهَا إِلَّا ذُو حَظًا عَظِيمٌ So Allah recognizes that this is very difficult and says, only those who are truly persevering and truly patient will be capable of rising to this level. And only those who are truly fortunate, truly fortunate, why? Because of Wilayatullah, Allah's love, and Silat al-Malaika, and the relationship with the angels. But in order to have that, to rise to this level of forbearance and forgiveness, and a wrong can never make a wrong, a, a, another wrong right. And a response to a wrong can never be another wrong. Now, beyond that, if you are able to respond to a wrong with an actual positive good, that's That's what the, the what only those that are truly fortunate may achieve this level. And know that anger and the desire to retaliate and the retire for vengeance and the desire for pettiness, you know, burning up, being full of angst and, and, and that burning sensation that you get when you get irritated or bothered or annoyed, is from shaitan. And if you want help from Allah, don't say it because I see modern Muslims, they'll be like, someone will be all angry and upset and then they'll, they'll, in the midst of their anger, they'll yell out, No, you're not saying it because you want Allah to calm you down. You're saying it because you're using it as an expression of your anger. That's actually offensive. Don't say it unless you mean it. Otherwise, it is using Allah's name in vain. 
Now, pause for a second and think about this. Surat Fusilat comes when? Muslims are at the height of persecution. And they are confronting rejection and absolute dejection. And it starts out by telling the Prophet they say, Khalas, we're not listening to you anymore. And between you and us is complete separation. You have your way and we have our way. And then it doesn't continue inviting them. But they're not going to listen to you. But know that, you know, those who don't listen, well, their past is horrible because... And, but, after taking you through all of that, the moral lesson it gives you is don't you dare allow the persecution, the evil that you are suffering, to make you confused about al-istiqamah. About living a principled moral life. And not only that, but not only can you not respond to evil with evil and wrong with wrong, but I am asking you to go beyond that and forgive them and be kind to them and be good to them. If you want Allah's love and you want Allah's support, how do you think this fell upon Muslims at that point? People like Abu Bakr and Ali radiallahu anhuma were understood the challenge and they started talking to the Prophet about Okay, so we are supposed to def defend ourselves but not have anger in our hearts towards them. And our whole attitude towards them is love. But there are so many reports of saying, how do we forgive those who are torturing us? How do we forgive those who starved our children to death? How do we forgive the way Khadija died destitute, she gave up all her money. But that's what Allah wants. And then after that, it takes you into a supernal cosmological outlook. So it says, and Allah is the one who created the sun and the moon, nature. It is completely irrational to prostrate, as if reminding you that this, the place that where you exist, has an owner and has a master. And then underscoring to the Prophet and to Muslims, remember that none of this is for Allah's benefit. And if 
the fact that they confront the da'wah with arrogance, remember that as far as Allah is concerned, Allah has those who supplicate, Allah throne. Allah doesn't need any of this. This is for you, for your own good. And then this most amazing verse, أَنَّكَ تَرَى الْأَرْضَ خَاشِعَةً فَإِذَا أَنْزَلْنَا عَلَيْهَا الْمَاءَ اهْتَزَّتْ وَرَبَتْ إِنَّ الَّذِي أَحْيَاهَا لَمُحْيَى الْمَوْتَ إِنَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٍ Look at the earth. It looks dead. But what rain falls, اهتزت وربت. Let's see how they translate that. 39. It quivers and swells. Study Quran says when rain, uh, when water is sent upon it, it quivers and swells. Yeah, I guess. Uh, so it, it, the 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 image is amazing because it is at a microscopic level. If you fast forward the process of plants growing out of seeds. It's literally like the earth quivers and swells or shakes and swells and shakes. But the God who brings life forth like this is capable of bringing forth life. So the, the fact that you think it is such a big deal that that you would be resurrected it's not it is that you don't understand the logic of the thing you might be capable of understanding the logic of rain falling and plant growing but that's part of your material world so you can empirically study it under understand it but if you understood the logic of you what you are incapable of understanding, you would understand that resurrection is equally easy, easy for Allah. In Sufi-esque literature, this ayah becomes critical in the imagery of the growth of the soul. When, as they say, um, they always say, uh, The wine of love. That when you long for your Lord, it's as if Allah extends the wine of love to you. And when you drink from the wine of love, you become intoxicated, thrilled, and you develop full consciousness. All your annoyances and your irritations and your anxieties vanish as you grow towards your Lord.
at the same time, your soul without that reign of the Lord becomes arid and hardened and cracked up. So they, they, they often compare cracked up earth, the earth that's dried and so cracked up, to the soul of a human being when it's full of anxieties and angst. The absence of divine love leads to that that soul being plagued by anxieties and angst and pettiness and rancor. You know, you're jealous of this person, you're pissed off at this person, you're annoyed at this person, you're so on and so forth. These are all like like um, often symptoms of an ailment, of a, of, a, of a disease that needs medicine. Oh, I forgot. Before, Don't, Allah created the, 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 the sun and the moon, so don't prostrate to the sun of the moon. The importance of saying this here is because of the concept of khudu'ah. The danger that human beings confront and the danger and the, the, the ailment that plagues Mecca is that their psychology has accepted that a hierarchy where a class is subjugated to another class. So the highest, perhaps they are, they submit and they subjugate themselves to material wealth and prestige. But then every class is on top of other, every other class. So you are some, you are, you are khadr to X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z is khadr to whoever, and the, the entire paradigm shift of Islam as al-khudu'a lillahi wahda, submission and subjugation is to Allah and Allah alone, and to no other. So again, when you find Muslims centuries later that talk about an Islam where despotism, severe inequalities in power, racism, classism, all types of inequities are treated as if they're normal. What they are is the institutionalization of khudur that one is given inordinate power over the other, which is completely antithetical to the point of Islam. The entire point of Islam is khudur lillahi wahda. Subjugation and submission is to Allah and Allah alone. But you can't ask people to do that, say, oh yeah, submit to Allah, but you live in a society where X, Y, and Z have all types of powers over you. 
They can destroy your life whenever they want. They can end your livelihood whenever they want. They can imprison your children whenever they want. They can abduct your wife whenever they want. Then you tell them, submit to Allah. That's unfair. That's unfair. You want them to submit to Allah. You must create conditions that are conducive to submission to Allah. And that's why every, every moral scholar of Islam throughout Islamic history who, un who understood Islam reached the conclusion that despotism is inconsistent with Islamism by its very nature. It doesn't take a genius. Modern Muslims. Notice in verse 40, اِعْمَلُوا مَا شِئْتُمْ إِنَّهُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ بَصِيرٌ When Allah tells you, so go ahead, do whatever you want. Go ahead, do whatever you want, for Allah sees everything. If Allah gave, said, go ahead, do whatever you, whatever you want, it raises very serious questions as to whether someone else can have the power to prevent you from doing whatever you want. Just notice 42, Again, the, the language is incredible. But the, the 42, falsehood comes not upon it from before it or behind it, a revelation from one wise and praised. Yeah, I mean, again, it's very literal, but that, الباطل that this is a book of truth and falsehood if understood I means like saying this is an incorruptible book and a book of complete truth and falsehood cannot be a part of it from whichever direction it is read that's the moral challenge because if you read the Quran to justify immoral things that's bottle. That that's like sneaking falsehood into the book from behind it or from what under it or from on top of it or whatever. The necessity of moral probity and ethical virtue in understanding the Quran. Okay. So then It now goes and addresses the Prophet and says, remember that your message 
ما يقال لك إلا ما قد قيل لرسل من قبلك what you are confronting the opposition that you confront is what happened with numerous prophets before it's like saying yeah, just understand that this is part of Allah's sunnah in existence then it returns the the argumentativeness of the Meccans and we say well wait why is this an Arabic Quran and it says the obvious this is an Arab prophet sent to these people at this moment and if the Quran was sent in any other language they would have said if only it would have spoken a language we can understand if only its meaning would have been clear to us. Whether it is Ajami, non Arabic, or Arabic, the revelation of your Lord is Huda, guidance and shifa and a cure. Now, cure often in the traditional tafsir, it's taken very literally that you can read the Quran as, as a physical, cure from physical ailments. But cure is, is not about physical ailments. It's spiritual ailments, moral ailments, ethical ailments. And those that refuse to believe, it is as if you are talking, the, talking to them from a far away land, meaning you are talking, yes, it is in Arabic, yes, it is in their language, but they are incapable of understanding. Again, underscoring to the Prophet ﷺ that there are people who are unreachable and it is not a matter of clarity or precision or eloquence or explaining things the right way the disease is in their hearts and then say well we've sent to Moses the book before and as happens with so many prophets, people disagreed. Some people believed him and some people didn't believe him. And if it is not for the fact that Allah is merciful and compassionate and doesn't in fact punish people for their misdeeds and often say, saves people from their follies, 
things would have ended a long time ago. وَمَا رَبُّكَ And God is never unjust towards human beings. Then, after a quick reference, again, to reminding you of the abilities of Allah, or, or the omnipotence of Allah, that Allah knows everything. You exist in Allah's full gaze and full sight. Then it takes the, till now, it is demanded from Muslims it's as if it is ignoring the plight that Muslims confront. Now, look at how the only concession it gives to the plight that Muslims are going through at this time. Then it says, لا يسأم الإنسان من دعاء الخير وإن مسه الشر فيأوس قنوت Allah knows that when human beings are suffering, as you are suffering now, Muslims, you, you do dua with full fervor and immense energy. But Allah also knows that human beings often are despairing. It's clearly talking to Muslims at the time. Those of you who are on the verge of despairing or who are actually despairing because of what they're going through, remember that when we often remove the hardship and we answer the call of human beings, human beings often fall in the trap of thinking that they earned the luxury or the comfort or the blessings that they're enjoying. They start thinking that it is not God that gave it to them, or even if they think it is God that gave it to them, in their heart, they feel they've earned it. They deserved it. Well, it's because I said this, or I did this, or I am this, or I am that. And this often leads to a drift away from Allah. and an obliviousness towards Allah. This is the warning about what is going to come. It's like saying, when Allah starts making you victorious, be careful. Because nothing is as dangerous as luxury. It's not the hardship that's dangerous. When you're going through hardship, you're very close to Allah. But it is the removal of hardship that's dangerous. It is the victory that you don't know is coming your way that's dangerous.
how does it describe people who are like that? That's a terrifying description. This is 52. Let me see how it turns a little bit. The study Quran translated, who is more astray than one in extreme schism? Shikok and Ba'id, it's like they split away from Allah and they drifted until they nearly have become a foe. Shikok, Ba'id, it's like you've allowed yourself to become a foe even if you don't realize it. But then we come, oh, before we we come to that, sorry, sorry. Uh, Go back to verse 45. Notice, or maybe 46, sorry, 46. من عمل صالحا فلنفسه ومن أساء فعليها وما ربك بظلام للعبيد whoever does good is for them and whoever does bad is against oneself and God is not unjust the, the reason I'm flagging this is because of um, something I read, it sounds, I, I had copied it without attribution many years ago, but it, it my, I suspect it's Ibn Ajiba, although I'm not sure. Uh, I, I'm going to read it first in Arabic and then I, I'll, I'll explain. الاختلاف على أهل الخصوصية سنة ماضية فمن رام الاتفاق على خصوصيته فهو كاذب في دعوة الخصوصية وفي الحكم استشرافك أن يعلم الخلق وفي وفي الحكم استشرافك أن يعلم الخلق بخصوصيتك دليل على عدم صدقك في عبوديتك. What the, this this remarkable commentary is saying that in response to whoever does good is for themselves and whoever does bad is against themselves and so on say that when there are people, Ahl al-Khususiyya are people who have developed a close relationship with Allah. And he says, Al-Ikhtilaf ala Ahl al-Khususiyya sunnah madiyya. That it is Allah's sunnah that in the same way people disagreed about the Prophet Musa a.s. And in the same way people disagreed about the Prophet Muhammad And the same way that people disagree about, disagreed about all the Prophets. That it is Allah's Sunnah that people disagree about the most blessed among them. And if someone who believes that they are among those people wants people to agree upon him or her 
فهو كاذب في دعوى الخصوصيه then in reality they're a fraud if they act like everyone should agree upon me i am an imam i am whatever then in fact they're a fraud and if you have this close relationship with allah but then you desire that people know that you have this close relationship with allah then then it is an indication that you're a fraud. So, wanting popularity, a consensus upon the self is, is signs that you're a fraud. And wanting people to know how special you are, especially vis-a-vis -vis your relationship with Allah, is also a sign that you're a fraud. That is Ibn Ajiba. It is Ibn Ajiba? Okay. Then we get to the most remarkable Ayah in Surat, if we can say that, in Surat Fussilam. Sanurihim ayatina fil afaqi wa fi anfusihim, hatta yatabayyana lahum annahu al-haq. Awalam yakfi birabbika annahu ala kulli shay'in shaheed. ألا إنهم في مرية من لقاء ربهم ألا إنهم بكل شيء ألا إنه بكل شيء محيط. Okay, so fifty-three. Here is translated: We shall show them our signs upon the horizons, and within themselves still becomes to clear to them that it is the truth. Does it not suffice that thy Lord is a witness over all things? سنريهم آياتنا في الآفاق وفي أنفسهم Now, in the traditional tafasir, they say, well, what this is talking about is that Allah is telling the Meccans, you will see, and he's talking about what Allah knows is coming, the battle of Badr, the, the Muslims conquering Mecca, that they, you will see our ayat, our signs, and you will be defeated. But the language is far more than that. The language itself of this is saying you will see the truth of what God says, fil afaq. Fil afaq, it's like saying you will see it in creation, you will see it in history, you will see it in sociology, you will see it in psychology, 
you will see it in biology, you will see it in everything. And even within the self, it's a type of promise that can only be made by God. It's like saying, the truth is the truth. And human experience will always bear out the truth of what I'm telling you. The people of Thamud and the people of Ad came. They were powerful. They were controlling. They were hegemonic. And the law of God is that they crumbled. Now, they crumbled because of these agents that Allah sent, the, these disasters. Al-Sayha, Rih. But no less lethal is the evil that you call upon yourself when you align yourself with the demonic. The sayha that tears human beings down or the rih sarsar in atiya that the evil winds can inflict human beings that don't take the path of a principled life, don't take the path of not, who refuse to take the path of not responding to a wrong with wrong, because a wrong with wrong leads to mutual destruction, to obliteration, to the spread of evil. Those who don't understand that the only response to what is wrong is right and to what is evil is good. It is all foretold. Allah, Allah is reminding you, Allah is the one teaching you so that you can reflect and ponder and understand. Now, in Sufi Astafasir, the commentary about this ayah is astounding. And I have just one example that I'll share with you. Uh, this is from this one I actually found. Uh, Ibn Ajiba quoting Ibn Mashish. Um, so he's saying Ya Abel Hassan Ibn Rashid is talking to Abel Hassan he's saying Ya Abel Hassan Haddad basar al-Iman tajid Allah fi kulli shayk wa inda kulli shayk wa ma'a kulli shayk wa qabla kulli shayk 
وبعد كل شيء وفوق كل شيء وتحت كل شيء وقريبا من كل شيء ومحيطا بكل شيء بقرب هو وصفة وعد وعد عن الظرفية والحدود وعن الأماكن والجهاد وعن الصحبة والقرب في المسافات وعن الدور بالمخلوقات وامحك القلب بوصف بوصفه الأول والآخر والظاهر والباطن وهو هو هو كان الله ولا شيء معه وهو الآن على ما عليه كان so there are two parts of our break it down حدد بصر الإيمان is one وعد عن الجهات is two so حدد بصر الإيمان meaning train your sight as a believer to see the truth of Allah's presence and your sight as a believer would then see Allah in everything في كل شيء and عند كل شيء and in everything and with everything وقبل كل شيء and before everything وبعد كل شيء and after everything وفوق كل شيء and above everything وتحت كل شيء and under everything وقريبا من كل شيء and near everything ومحيطا بكل شيء and surrounding everything Allah is all present if you look with the sight of Iman but if you train yourself to look with the sight of Iman and you keep reminding yourself that Allah is before and after and with and under and above and inside and around everything exists through the will of Allah in the sight of Allah then you get to the second step meaning at that point you will understand something about the divine that is critical for seeing the signs in the horizons as Surat Fusulat says that Allah has no jiha, has no direction Allah la zarf, wala had, wala makan, wala jiha Allah has no place, no limits no up or down Allah is all pervasive and all present so in other words Allah is beyond time and beyond space Allah has no space and has no time it is like if someone tries to describe where's energy where's gravity 
we no energy and gravity because they are the realm of our empirical experiences but they are indication to a reality that we all always come to the edge of that reality and then lose touch like our awareness of black matter or anti-gravity or, or, or anti-matter there are things that exist in a realm that doesn't follow the and Allah is the essence of that that has no boundaries so when you understand that Allah has no limits and has no direction your tool in this will say that always remember that the way you you bust the way you you deconstruct any misunderstanding is to always remember how Allah describes Allah's self Allah is the first and the last and the zahir and the and the external and the bottom and the the truth or the internal so nurihim to see the ayat Allah fil afaq in the horizons is not just about is not it is it is myopic to understand it and the way the grammar is or the way it's phrased itself is that it's not just about history it's not just about a people it's not just about sociology but it is the truth of things that if you truly understand what it's all about then Allah becomes your beginning and your last and if Allah becomes your beginning and your last then the very paradigm of responding to evil with kindness to hurt with forgiveness of stepping beyond the way human beings live a life of tit for tat becomes natural to you. So when I started out, I said, if you only knew what Surat Fussilat is, for Surat Fussilat came, it's not an exaggeration to say like a cold shower upon these poor suffering Muslims. It told them there's no hope in the Meccans that have not converted and will not follow. This didn't surprise them. But and the 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 unfortunately there are a lot of Muslims who then said, Oh well these verses in Surah Fusulat 
about treating offense with forgiveness and so on were abrogated by the fighting verses in Medina. Nothing could be further from the truth. It was critical to impart this constitutional moral lesson to Muslims before they ever are given permission to fight. Because they were going to fight to defend themselves. But what happens in war is that often your hurt makes you vindictive. And Allah needed to anchor the moral lesson of you live for principles. If you want Allah with you in this enterprise, you have to live a principled life, a moral, ethical existence. The minute that it becomes about what human beings do and what demons do, whether human or jinn, he hurt me, so I'm going to hurt him back. Allah is out of the game. Forget it. This is why the Meccans tried to degrade the message of Surah Fusilat by saying, oh, he's just threatening us. Muslims became pensive and weighed down by it. No, it's not about threatening them is about us having to treat them with kindness as they continue for as they continue inflicting all types of sufferings on us this is also why we have reports of people leaving islam after surat fusilat People who told the Prophet, we can't do it, sorry. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, and this is Surah Fusilat. I might remember something I forgot. Alhamdulillah, that was incredibly amazing. I don't mean, I'm just like, no words, but I have a gazillion questions. <laughs> It was really, really amazing. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so, so much. So let's take a break and um, collect questions, send them through the chat, and then um, we'll come back with Q&A. Alhamdulillah. Truly. I mean, it's it's so like, um, you know, when you start thinking about things like Palestine, all of the things around the world, um, I mean, there are just so many lessons. It, it, it's... It, it's, it's, if people understood, if, if Muslims only understood their book, it would be an instant transformation. It, it just, it, it is really, you, you could go read as many tafsir as you want, and I'm sure some of the students here have gone and read tafsir, and you won't find any of the stuff that I, any, any of this. Um, but once, I am sure of this, 
I am sure of this, that once I state it, once I say it, every scholar who has a pure heart will read the surah and say, that's exactly what it says. The, the, it's, it's obvious. Once you say it, it's like it's the most obvious thing in the world. It's clear. It's undeniable. Alhamdulillah. Enhance the title. Yeah. And that's exactly. That's, a, that's, that's why it's called Fussilat. I'm, I'm spelling it out to you. Alhamdulillah. Okay. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, Alhamdulillah. I mean, there are just no words. That, you know, just mic drop, yes. And, you know, it was truly incredible. And, you know, just again, as, as a convert, as a non-Arabic speaking person, you know, especially when, when you see these verses that are like, you know, God is sending this to you. It's extremely clear. It's in your language. So you understand it. Let there be no confusion about it. You know, what you're doing when you take us through this and you help us understand, like, the meaning of these verses, you know, in that time, you know, through the lens of understanding the idioms, their, you know, their context, and then you bring it into our context, and then you use our language, and you use our understanding so that it becomes very clear to us. It is an incredible experience, and you just, you feel the truth of it in your soul. So, I mean, I can't express, like, just the gratitude, I mean, just how valuable this is. And, you know, it's, um, you know, I just, I pray that people will continue to benefit from this because there's nothing like it in our, in our time, in our age, in our language, in our epistemology, you know, all of it. It's so valuable. So, alhamdulillah, thank you so much. Um, is there, a, was there a particular vicar? First question. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It is the nature that I've done is 34 and 35. Verses 34 and 35. I don't know if anyone heard that, but for the vicar. Okay. Um, Rami, would you like to start us off with a question? Uh, yes. Okay. Just the, you know, Fusirat comes in the very beginning and then in verse 44. Um, I just wanted to uh, know what the significance of it was in, in I don't know, is there, because, you know, it also mentions about the idea of it's in Arabic. And the, I think the second or third verse, and then when the Meccans are saying, you know, uh, in, uh, if uh, Allah is saying that even if we had sent it in non-Arabic, they would say "Dawda Fusirat Ayatu Azir." I mean, since it's the name of the surah. Can you repeat? I think the, the uh, Rami's question is just about the the significance of Fusulat. Uh, um, because it, the Fusulat is mentioned um, twice in Surah Fusulat. Um, interestingly enough, I, I should say that the, the uh, Surah Fusulat, they were competing alternative names for the Surah. 
Um, one was, some have uh, suggested calling it Hamim Sajda, uh, because there is a Sajda in, in Surah Al-Sulat. Another was, was Surah Al-Masabih. Um, but these, ultimately these were not successful, and Surah Al-Sulat is what, uh, the, the, that, that's what became prevalent and, and widely accepted. Um, and for, so the, the word for salat is, is mentioned twice in the, at the beginning of the surah and then again where it, it engages in, in, a, in the rhetorical discussion with the, with the, uh, the Meccans and, and it says, you know, that if we would have revealed it in a language other than Arabic, the, the Meccans would have said, if, if, if only it spoke our language, if only we, it, it spoke something that we can understand. And, but the, the second, um, the, the second mention of the Fussilat, the, is is can be subsumed under the first because the first kitab of Fusulat Ayatul Quran al Arabiya Nukumini Alamun that this is a book and as I as I said earlier when you say Fusilat Ayatul it means it it's it's ayat it's narrative, it's discourse, it's signs, and ayah is a sign, but in, in, in say like it's, it's basically what it says is purposefully crafted. It's like saying um, there is a, a precise intentionality behind the the words of this Quran. And then later on, this is bolstered by saying, that the falsehood cannot come to it from either behind it or in front of it. So in, in other words, it is, what is most remarkable, What it's like saying, from the very beginning, pay attention to the precise wording. It's like saying, pay attention to my words. I'm going to tell you something really important here. Um, because in other, in other places, the, the, the dhikr or the kitab is, is, it, it's, it's described as hakim. The, as a book of wisdom is described as Tibyanun uh, as a, 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 a an exposition on everything that you need to know. And so in other words, we have elsewhere where the Quran is described as a book of completeness. But here in Fusulat, it is like saying, pay attention, I'm going to deliver to you a very important message. And 
I think when understanding Surat Fussilat as part of the Hawamim, understanding that although it's part of the Hawamim, it is revealed after the Isra, and understanding the message of Surat Fussilat is a counterintuitive message, and understanding that it is a message that lays the foundation for what will develop, and what will develop is again a moral challenge, because it's saying, understand that truth is the truth, morality is morality, ethics is ethic, and what will come later is a real test to all of that, because it's it's hostility and it's war and it's violence. Um, and also understanding that it is followed by Surah Shura, which is something we have to leave to later. Um, it, the, the best way to describe it, in my view, is that it is saying it means what it says. You ignore what it says at your own peril. When it tells you that you will be, your partners in life will become demons, it means that. When it tells you that the demonic will take you down, it means that. When it tells you that what could be extended to you is God's love, it means that. When it tells you that your partners in life could be angels, it means that. When it tells you that the path is through a moral path, a principled path, and a path where morality means that you don't answer wrong with wrong, it means that. When it tells you that beyond that is the path of ihsan and goodness, and that those who are truly gods, those who truly want to be elevated in divinity, in status with the divine, that you respond to, to unkindness with kindness and with, with, with hostility, to hostility with forgiveness, it means that. And that's why it's called Fusulat. And that's why it, it, you have it. And that's not unusual, by the way, that often the opening of the surah will be uh, connected to the ultimate message of the surah. Any other questions? So apt that this is the halakha that we got after your yesterday um, because it, I see a lot of parallels between what you called the tyranny of the nervous system and being in the bondage of, of pain and the, the dynamic between pain and pleasure and that being ultimately what controls your life and it and I asked you last night like this seems daunting and I mean not just daunting but it, it feels like something that I've been trying at for a long time, but ultimately it, it's still so difficult. And you said that um, perseverance is the answer to it, and to just 
I took that as, you know, keep keep trying. But um is when you're when you're talking about in the Holocaust about the end dad and that we need to figure out what the end dad are in our life, how do you suggest that we do that. I mean, what what is the, the protocol to figuring out what the end ad are and to actually, I mean, it seems like we're given one major part of that is meeting bad with, with good and when someone does evil to repel it with something that is better. But specifically, I feel like, I mean, is it that each person has their own specific unique end dad? Uh, well, first, what Sharif is, is referring to, if, uh, those who didn't here at the khutbah yesterday, um, yesterday I was talking about, it, it's actually, it, the backdrop for it is that it, it, there's a, it's a philosophical, uh, it's a, it, it goes back to philosophy, that consciousness and the, the, the nature of consciousness and what is consciousness. And I was always struck that a lot of the debates of consciousness ultimately uh, um, the wrong-headed debate about consciousness they ultimately always go back to the nervous system and but the nervous system is um, it's a tyrant um, because the nervous system responds to stimuli, and the nervous system uh, either makes you feel pleasure about something or feel displeasure. Um, and its responses are not always rational. Uh, you're not always sure why something... Uh, makes you pleasant feel pleasant and other things makes you feel unpleasant um, and often what happens in a lot of philosophical discourses about consciousness is that they end up starting from the responses of the nervous system and then they philosophize the responses of the nervous system um, and, and that's a, a, a deep error and a, and a huge problem. But anyway, what I was saying in the khutbah is that that we're given consciousness, and consciousness is a mystery. We we don't we have very little about when it begins and when it ends, and we have this thing in, called the nervous system, and the nervous system is always responding to things that are deeply encoded within it. Um, things from our past, things from our genes, things from God knows what. And it, it then it tells us, feel good, feel bad, feel down, feel high. The whole Islamic outlook is to come to this nervous system and to say, you're not in control. That what is in control is a value system. A value system that is rationally adopted, a matter of rational conviction, 
and then to demand that the nervous system submit to the value system that one embraces. And that was the, the part of the khutbah that um, Shrif was alluding to. And then, uh, and then it went, the khutbah went on to, talk, to elaborate on various aspects, as usual. Um, but of course, it, it is very difficult. And she was saying, yeah, last night he was sitting pensively. I think he, he was thinking about the khutbah the entire day and the entire night. And and he said what I, I knew that he was thinking is that that it's really hard that um, to get your nervous system to not be in control and um, to make your feelings, your desires uh, submit to a value system rather than the other way around to effectively tell the nervous system, I'm not going to be depressed because you, whatever chemicals, you, 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 whatever that demand that I be depressed and I'm not going to be high whenever you want me to be high and I'm not, and and he was saying, saying how and I said perseverance. And I mean that in, in um, that first is becoming aware of it. But here's the trick. So many people become aware of it and it's like the, the, the Prophet والسلام, when um, how was this hadith uh, uh, phrased? Um, Uh, the there is a I'm forgetting the the wording of the hadith, but it, the 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 um, قُلْ رَبِّيَ اللَّهِ ثُمَّ اسْتَقِمْ The Prophet told people there are so many people that are guided to the idea of Rabbi Allah Mustaqim. My my Lord is God and that I must persevere in the path. But Asbahu Biha Kafirin that eventually as life progresses they lose it. It no longer becomes a part of it. The trick or the, the challenge is to see it and to persevere with it till the hour, till the moment of your death. Th that, that's what the hadith says effectively. That that and it, so many people realize at one point, at one some event in their life that the nervous system is a tyrant and that the nervous system is in fact in control 
it makes them want desire something it makes them not want something it makes them have a crush on someone it makes them not have a crush on someone it, it does all th types of things to them but but the realization is momentary and the it's like someone who starts exercising they go work out for one day and and they get excited and they have a gym membership but then they never go again. That's exactly the way a lot, the vast majority of people are with the nervous system. They work out for a day, they get excited, they get a gym membership, but they never go again. The perseverance is to remember it day after day after day after day and to keep track, whatever way you keep track in a diary that's what I did. I, I, that's why I've kept a diary most of my life, since I've since I was eight, no, even younger, sixteen. Uh, and my diary basically is is a, keeps track of my failures. I mean, it's really a sum total of my failures in life, um, struggles and failures. Um, so. And dad, no, each of us, and dad that we associate with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is as individual to us as our nervous system. Um, some and dad are more dangerous than others, you know, but we are constantly because we, we 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 live in this material paradigm and we don't train ourselves to see Allah in everything and because we don't train ourselves to see Allah in everything we don't feel Allah in everything so our and that is as diverse as our personal life experiences but these are that and that are quite often the the way that um, we we keep Allah at bay and we keep the the hand of the divine at bay we, we create the blocks between us and the aid of divinity um, so when I said persevere what I meant by it it's not just keep trying, but more importantly, remember. Because the pattern of most people is that they'll remember from one night, two nights, maybe even a week, but then they forget. The idea gets old. And as it gets old, they drop the struggle. They're no longer working out. Um, no. It... it, it Keep in mind how long, for how many days and nights a human being lives under the, the subjugation of the, ty the, the tyranny of the nervous system. You need an investment of at least 10% of the time 
that you've spent subjugated to the nervous system, challenging the nervous system to break the hold. So think of what the 10% of the time is, and that's sort of in a, in a ballpoint, uh, generally, is how long you will have to struggle before you will see the first good signs that you're now in control, that you can will yourself not to be depressed, not to be irrationally ecstatic, not to covet this, not to desire this, not to lose your mind over this or that. Um, and w when that starts happening, it, 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 it's the, the, the path, the more you also keep reminding yourself to do a ta'awuz, a'awuzu billah min shaitan al-rajim, and an istighfar, and an istighfar here is, is a, a medium to telling, constantly reminding yourself, do you see Allah in this? Do you see Allah in this? Do you see Allah in this? It, it, it is part of the, 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 the methodology of healing the dynamic of healing. Um, but healing does happen. It, it, I mean, it's... And what a lot of people just do not again, imagine is that the, the rewards... I mean, it, it is not... That's why I would say Surat Fussilat. It's really fusulat. It, it spells out what you might be tempted to think. Oh, really? You know, because how many Muslims do really take this at its word? Uh, really imagine that they can live in the company of the divine in in this 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 principled life. That's why it's called Fusulat, and that's why it means Fusulat. Um, but it requires the determination and the perseverance and the insistence. It's like everything in life. You, you, you go after it. You know, how many nights do you study to get a degree? Um, Nothing just, you know, comes. Everything, the sunnah, sunnah of Allah is everything requires perseverance and a determined pursuit to be achieved. And the most important investment you can make is in yourself. Something that we often ignore. But the most important investment, it's not in your career, it's not in your whatever you invest in, it's in yourself. To, to see how your body and how 
your heart will testify or what you will see in the hereafter before you're forced to see it. To see yourself. Um, yeah. Alhamdulillah, that was so valuable. So, uh, just to clarify, when you say um, you challenge yourself 10% of the time to break the holes, so for uh, no. example... Look, if you've lived... 30 years under the control of the tyranny of your nervous system. What's 10% of 30 years? Three years. Three years. So for three years, you need to remind yourself every day, I'm challenging my nervous system. That's a rule of thumb. Some people do it faster, some people take longer, but that's the rule of thumb. But a lot of people, you know, will do it for three days mm -hmm. and they'll get tired of it. And, you know, this is why, this is why when you talk to a lot of, well, I don't know about these days, but, you know, I, I don't know about the U.S., so a lot of people, I don't know. Anyway, when you talk to real scholars, they don't say much. And they don't say much because if they start saying, they'll not shut up. You know, then they have to explain a lot. But not everyone is ready to hear everything all the time. Um, it, it's rather amazing. It's like uh, you hear modern Muslims, there's a lot of verbiage with nothing said. Um, I mean, I, I listen to so many, I, I mean, or, or at least now I read, I don't, when I used to listen, so many khutbahs with nothing, there's nothing said, just air, words, and air. Um, this question is, is related to what you were talking about just now, so, um, are, are my intrusive thoughts from the devil? Every time I get a PTSD flashback, I feel a lot of anger, terror, and vengeance. Does that mean that I can cure my PTSD flashbacks just by reciting or at least solve the negative emotions that come with the flashbacks? Um, yes, but be kind to yourself because um, Uh, when we suffer the really demonic and really evil, um, it scars us, and it scars us very deeply. And scarring is like physical injury. It 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 um, it hurts and it damages. And so. Whether saying is enough, uh, to be quite honest, what I always advise for, especially, especially for cases of sexual abuse, um, even m more, it's, I mean, physical abuse, it might be different, but 
sexual abuse in particular is to preferably to find a good Muslim counselor or psychiatrist or psychologist, whatever, even if they're not Muslim, but someone who's very moral, uh, very principled. Um, because this is, um, this is no small thing. This is no small thing. It is from shaitan, and it is absolutely evil. And um, yes, there are people who heal. I mean, I actually know someone personally, a, a woman, uh, who simply through her spiritual experiences healed and and, and became an icon for, for all of us. Um, I mean, we, we just go be in her presence just to be in her presence. You know, not even if she doesn't even talk to us, we just wanted to just in, be around her, you know, her aura and, and her just her beauty, her, her luminosity, just, but, um, but I, I know that this woman had spent years and years in worship. And I know that uh, what the visitations she got and the visions she got and what, what transformed her eventually but you know, it's it's something that I can't just say to other people. Oh, do what she did. So, al-istazam al-shaytan al-rajim is part of it, and a very important part of it. And asking Allah for for help in overcome overcoming the pain and the 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 trauma of the memory is part of it. Uh, but don't sell yourself short from if good professional help is possible, use it. It, it is sometimes becomes very important in uh, recovering memory and simply sometimes when you talk to someone who has, who's good, they, they can help you think through um, especially things like self-blame, self-hate, sensations of disgust, uh, problems with intimacy, problems with forming relationships with other human beings. All of these are, are, are consequences of sexual abuse and um, and the, 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 the trauma they leave are, are very, very real, very real. Um, they're, they're not, they're no joke. Um, okay, another question. Thank you so much for this beautiful tafsir. I'm wondering what is the relationship between shahada, witness, and the fasl, discernment of fusilat? The end of verse 53 seems to be pointing to a relationship there.
أنه على كل شيء شهيد دي The end of 53 is The Shahada here and actually I'm happy you asked this question because the, the Shahada here is speaking to the Prophet and to Muslims excuse me to Muslims And saying that, remember that the, the 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 challenge of belief in which you live a life of istiqama, and as we said, a life of istiqama is a life, a principled life, and a principled life, as we said, and as Surah. Uh, Fusilat makes clear that let us tell you al hasana wa sayyi'ah that good and bad are not equal and and you cannot respond to evil by evil, etc. as we all all that we said. So and then it says that they will see the truth of this. Now, the challenge to this is to say, this is nonsense. We don't, we, we're not going to see the truth of this. We're not going to believe in any of this. What is this talking about? This is too difficult. And the response is, isn't it enough that Allah is the shaheed, meaning that isn't it enough that who bears witness to the truth of things is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So it's responding to the question to the question of every moral inquiry that you ever confront. Well, what's the point of morality if people disagree on it? What's the point of morality if no one, if, if most people don't believe in it? What's the point of morality if only a handful of people can adhere to it? And it's saying, don't worry about that. It is enough that it comes from Allah. And it's enough that Allah knows that it is the truth. Now, of course, when we say "Ashhadu anna la ilaha illallah," "Ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah," we are bearing witness at a deeper level. What we are bearing witness to is that what Allah bears witness to is the truth. When when you find a Muslim that says, "Well, I'm bearing witness here, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, Shabbat Rasulullah," but they're not sure that their value system it's 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 enough that Allah says, "Don't respond to evil with evil," or "Don't respond to wrong with wrong," or 
I mean, I'll give you a very practical example from, you know, a long time ago, I, I, this is when I um, first came to the U.S. and I, I met uh, a guy who was in medical school uh, at Yale. And we, back then, this is before cell phones and stuff like that, you know, we, we would, uh, you basically lived from week to week just so you can hear the voice of your family on the phone and phone calls back home were very very expensive so you know when money is tight then you don't call your family for a whole month or 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 even longer sometimes several months because you couldn't afford it so this guy that i met first thing he does is he said oh don't worry and he whipped out he prayed and he was he was uh, observant Muslim. He whipped out a bunch of credit card numbers. Yeah, he said we can make phone calls and charge the phone calls. You can call your family as much as you want. You can charge the phone calls to these credit cards. And I said, who does who does these credit card number belong to? And he said, well, don't worry about that. They're they're circulated among us Arabs, you know. So I figured out that they're basically st stolen credit card numbers, or and I and, he, and I said, but that's haram. And he said, no, it's not haram because it's a, the phone company who's going to end up, you know, the people who own these credit cards are going to refuse to pay for the phone calls, and then it's the the credit company, uh, the the phone company is going to bear the cost, and it's you know it's their problem. They're, they're a rich corporation, and. Of course, I refused to do it, but it just stayed with me. See how many years now? I, you know, this was back in in 1983, and it stayed with me because, as innocent as I was back then, I just couldn't couldn't figure out. You pray, you talk about God all the time, but. This is this for me in retrospect now is a very good example of someone who says Ashadu anna la ilaha illallah but does not accept Allah's shahada. Allah bears witness to what is right and wrong, and that should be sufficient. We shouldn't use our intellect to dilute things, to rationalize things, to say, well, you know, uh, it, 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 it's the phone company is going to bear the cost, it's okay. You know, it it also reminds me of Omar, what Omar al Khattab said. You know, don't don't play around like like a fox. Um, so we bear witness that uh, what Allah bears witness to is the truth. If only we would mean it. So follow up to that. Um, would it be fair to say then that sort of uh, Fusilat is both a building up of an epistemology and a complete smashing of it? And as such, is even how we know what we know contingent on us knowing the awal and the akhir, the first and the last? Uh, who asked that question? Guess. Oh, it's, Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's a brilliant question. Yes, it is. It's a very brilliant question. It's ab you're absolutely right. 
Can you very explain well put. that? Can you explain that for us who are not so brilliant and don't quite understand what you mean by folding it up and smashing it? I should ask her to explain, but no, I, I, I won't. Okay. It it comes. It first is that the real surrender, the real surrender to accepting that life ought to be guided by an ethical order, by the discipline of al-istiqamah. And, and we Muslims, we've turned istiqamah into, oh, just pray and fast. No, that's not istiqamah. Istiqamah is to say, I live a purposeful life and this purposeful life is an ethically conscientious life I might be wrong a lot of times but as long as I engage in the sincere effort at ethical conscientiousness I'm protecting myself but in order to do that you need to anchor yourself in the belief that it is all from Allah and to Allah. You need to surrender. The system of knowledge is not about what I benefit, about cost and benefit. It's not about utility. It's not about maximizing pleasure points. And it is about, oh, Wait, so it's all, all of this is owned by God and all of this has a referential point, a frame of authoritative reference, and that is God. And so that's the building of the epistemology because you are effectively, then you are saying, this is not about yeah, you Meccans, you know, you 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 have your system of who's a nobleman. You have your system of who's a a, a, a respect. And remember what what Uba tells the Prophet is: You've embarrassed us. You've caused so many problems in our society. You've you've you know you've divided us. You've you this you this you this. Well, by the ethical by the epistemological system of Utbah, he's right. Muhammad is a troublemaker. He's created all these problems. But by the epistemology, the epistemological system of the divine, he's absolutely wrong. Because the world in which Utbah lives is wrong. And that's, the, that's what you're tearing down, is that you're saying, no, you know, you live in a world, Utbah, where you can bury your daughter. It's like the man who told the Prophet you know, I, every daughter I've had in my life, I've, I've buried her to death, or I've killed her, and the Prophet started crying, and said, where is your heart? This, this is the world you live in, the, the powerful eats the, the weak. The world you live in, the rich is entitled to be rich. The world you live in, you don't give zakah. You, you, don't, you don't care for, for the other. The world you live in, two wrongs make right. The world you live in, if someone is powerful, 
then they should expropriate power. And if someone is weak, they shouldn't submit. The world you live in is the epistemology of that world, is the world of opportunity, cost and benefit, utility. The world that the Quran demands is the world of Allah, is the first and the last. That world is a principled world. It is beyond cost and benefit analysis. And so it is surat fusilat. It's precisely, it, you couldn't come up with a better title. It is precisely that. We have to tear this up and build a moral order that is very different than the one we tore up. But look at the remarkable gentleness. There's no, you know, world, no, no, no like a revolutionary track, destroy them and kill them and obliterate them and smash their heads against tree trunks and, you know, and th this is your promised land and wipe out the, the others and none of that. It is that, that you maintain the moral struggle and Allah will show you the signs in the horizon. And subhanAllah. And that is why, that is why the challenge for contemporary Muslims is to realize that the first defeat they've suffered is an ethical defeat. And the road to recovery is a moral, ethical recovery. It is, it is when we insist in our life not on shooting our guns in the air and saying, Allahu Akbar, you know, we've won a little battle here, a little battle there, or we've done this, you know. It, it is when we insist, we teach our children. It is about... Allah is the first and the last and it is about Allah wanting us to live a principled ethical life where we are the moral example and that is how we what does Surah Fussilat tell you at the beginning those who call to who invite to the path of the Lord they believe they do good and they invite to the path of the Lord and then by the end, what do you learn? You're going to invite the path of the you invite to the path of your Lord through ethical example. It's it's once you once you <coughs> internalize Surah Fussilat in your in the fiber of your being, you can never be the same. I think that's a perfect place to end. It's so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much.